0: The military health care system might be less than optimal for military women, resulting in issues that might ultimately reduce both top health and retention. That's the finding of no less than the Defense Health Board, and it's one of several developments you need to know about in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mascione join me with more. Scott we'll start with you that's some pretty dramatic findings from the Defense health Board give us some more detail
1: well there's a lot of women in the military who I think are at this point are feeling that maybe some of the culture some of the policies have not really been exactly inclusive and that's something the military's been working on for quite a while recently they've offered a lot of things like refrigerators for women to store breast milk finding better ways for uh, female pilots to use the bathrooms while they're in a flight but at the same time we're still seeing a lot of numbers That are coming through showing that women are getting injured disproportionately compared to men. Now, this doesn't have to do with the physiology of women. This has to do purely with the the issues and the equipment that they're being given. So for instance, if a woman is given a flight suit that's made for a man, it might be extra baggy and, and it'd be more possible that that flight suit might get caught in some sort of rotor or something like that. So we're seeing a lot of those issues. The real issue is that the military is trying to keep women in the military and retain them. And around the mid-career time frame is when they're losing a lot of these women. And for 70 years, studies have said that and advisory committees, decision making groups have all said that these have been an issue. Health, fitness, safety and performance can be improved by just changing some of the culture. So the Defense Health Board is really trying to just uh, foot stomp that and make it a little easier for women to serve and serve healthfully.
0: And what happens to the board's recommendations?
1: Well, the board's recommendations will go to the Defense Health Agency. And some of the things that they said was really some obvious things. Better sex education for service members. Those tend to vary by bases, possibly because of states. And, uh, you know, that also causes unintended pregnancies. It said that unintended pregnancies are about 50 percent higher for active duty women compared to civilian women. Another, like I said, changing equipment so that it's just easier for women something as simple as making a helmet or a flight suit for a woman that just fits their body better and also adding maternity clothes as well.
0: All right. So lots of issues. It's time to retire that slideshow, the maturation of the gamete. And Jared, you've talked to some retired high level people commenting on the Vacancies Act, and it might be moot at this point of some of the appointments the Trump administration made. But what did you find there?
2: Yeah, yeah, the one that, that kind of surprised people the most was a week ago when uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper was fired and replaced by someone from outside the department, the National Counterterrorism Center director, Christopher Miller. A lot of people kind of scratched their heads and said, can the president actually do that? And the answer is the consensus really has developed around the answer being yes, which is because of the 1998 Federal Vacancies Reform Act, which we've heard way too much about in the last four years, in my humble opinion. And the reason is it takes precedence over time title 10, which also sets, um, sort of a succession process for the Secretary of Defense, as you would expect. Title 10 says that the Deputy Secretary of Defense becomes the Acting Secretary in the Secretary's absence, but the Federal Vacancies Reform Act says that unless an agency-specific statute doesn't specifically say that we want we, we want our agency's statute to override FERA, then FERA takes precedence. And what FERA says is that the President also has the latitude to appoint someone as a temporary acting agency head if that person is already a Senate confirmed official, even if it's in another agency. So I talked with Arnold Panaro, who was uh, very deeply involved in the, the uh, writing of the Goldwater-Nichols Act back in 1986, which was really the, the, the last time Congress tackled the issue of how the Defense Department's civilian leadership should be organized. He feels very strongly that the president was within his legal rights to do this, but also that it was clearly not Congress's intent to let this sort of thing happen. One of the issues, though, is Goldwater-Nichols predated the Federal Vacancies Reform Act uh, by by many years. The Vacancies Act, uh, latest version of the Vacancies Act, wasn't passed until 1998. No one in Congress really seemed to have noticed that it superseded uh, the authorities in Title Ten for how succession should actually be done, and uh, so so Gold. That, that, that portion of Goldwater-Nichols was never really amended. Panaro says he's, he, th- he thinks it's likely that the Senate Armed Services Committee will take this issue up next year and, and make sure that that issue is resolved. Because the, 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 the point, he says, is that Congress always wanted to have this emphasis on civilian control of the military and have people who are extremely knowledgeable about what's currently going on in the Department of Defense, which is why you would want that deputy secretary who has already been through the Senate confirmation process and been in the chair for a while to be the next person to take over as the acting mm <laughs> Well, we'll see how the uh, next
0: administration handles all these appointments, but hopefully there'll be some stability at the top. I think that's what's something that uh, Joe Biden has been promising. And Scott, down at the ground level, remote job training, the USO, that's all been kind of interrupted by COVID.
1: There's more than 200,000 service members from active duty force transitioning every year, another 50,000 from the Garden Reserves. And really, the issue is, is that once they leave, they've been enmeshed in this military culture. They haven't had to write a resume for five, six, Seven, 10 years for professional development. And they're not really sure how to break into the new sort of uh, civilian world. So the USO has always been trying to help people do that. They have a Pathfinder transition program that helps military service members get into the civilian world. The problem is, is that COVID has made it much harder. What they're doing now is they're creating these webinars, and all week this week, they'll be doing webinars. Um, and some of the people that they'll have talking are people from Lowe's and Home Depot who are vocational skills experts, as well as people from the entertainment business, from blogging and communication businesses, and everything in between to try and uh, just really help people break into these issues, make the networking and uh, connections that they need, and then also possibly uh, you know, figure out a way to do this during the COVID uh, sort of situation.
0: All right. And uh, Jared, we'll end with you. Some new strategies for old parts, something that is always bedeviling the military.
1: Yeah, we've been
2: hearing so much lately about the promise of 3D printing and other advanced manufacturing technologies for for helping the military services make replacements for, for spare parts that are just not findable on the open market anymore. And what DOD is really trying to do here is ensure that uh, when a new program is started, program managers are thinking about the problem of potential parts obsolescence over the entire life cycle of a program for as long as that weapon system is going to be fielded. Uh, a lot of detail still to come on this. What Right now, what we have now is just a, a baseline DOD instruction. That sets out this framework that they call the Diminishing Manufacturing Sources and Material Shortages Management Framework. We're going to see some actual policy documents come out primarily from Undersecretary Ellen Lord's office on exactly how how that's going to be applied to programs, but it is interesting that this is a requirement for for all systems going forward. Make sure you're thinking about how you're going to deal with these parts issues once they become obsolete.
0: Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Massioni, Check out their latest DoD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com.